Sometimes one of the hardest questions we can ask ourselves is why, especially in agriculture. Between unpredictable weather and markets, thin profit margins, and trying just to spend time with family and friends, most agriculture producers don't have the time to question why they do the things the way they do. Producers, and understandably so, are preoccupied with figuring out how they're going to get the job done. But asking ourselves why can also help us figure out how to get the job done. Whether that's figuring out how to feed bales, what to seed, or how to advance farm solutions that are also climate solutions in Alberta. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're looking at egg research and regenerative agriculture. Welcome to part two of Ag Research with Jason Bradley, Manager of Strategic Partnerships at Olds College in Olds, Alberta. In part one, we got an overview of agriculture research in the province. We also heard a bit about Jason's story and how he got into the work that he's doing. In part two, we'll hear more about post-secondary research into agriculture, but the majority of this episode is about what regenerative agriculture is and what it's not and why increased uptake of regenerative agriculture practices would be a good thing in Alberta. We'll pick things up where we left things in part one when I asked Jason to define regenerative agriculture. He actually gave me some minor pushback on coming up with a definition. And this isn't the first time this has happened. Here's what Rod Olson of YYC Growers said in episode 43, Regen Co-ops, when I asked him the exact same question. But yeah, so for me, I think regenerative ag like always has to kind of keep that indigenous perspective because we're borrowing um, practices that that were developed over thousands of years of better harmonious relationships with the land. Like I, what I actually love about regenerative egg is that it's a destination, it's a journey. And, and I think that's where a lot of the concern over a definition comes in because you can be a lot of different places on that journey. But I like the journey idea because you're, ne- you're never done. Whereas like organic certification, you, you hit the certification and then I mean, our human response is like, okay, I don't have to work anymore. I'm like, no, 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 I think the environment ecosystem, the complexity of it actually demands that we constantly be iterating all the time. And so, yeah, so I, I hope a definition doesn't come that, you know, get, makes it too, too limiting. Now compare that with the very first thing Jason said when I asked him that question. I just want to know inside of me that I'm doing things with the five specific principles of regenerative agriculture that I'm following those things. And I and so if I work too hard at trying to be identified as something, if regenerative ag works too hard as a movement to be to protect that and it it as a definition or a practice is there's a part of it that's at risk of being greenwashed with marketing campaigns from really big companies. But it's like, okay, well, if they want to, if they want to use that term, fine. But our job as people of the land, as producers, as people that are passionate about that practice of regenerative agriculture, we just need to be really good at advancing what that is and not get too distracted by trying to protect its integrity. We'll listen to the rest of what Jason had to say about defining regenerative agriculture in a moment. But I do find it quite interesting that an advocate for regen egg like Jason and a regenerative agriculture producer like Rod both had similar concerns about defining regenerative agriculture. 
you get the sense that they're either worried that defining it may limit regen egg and its potential to deliver on positive outcomes for the environment, food, and people, or that defining it too narrowly may discourage people from adopting regenerative agriculture practices. We've got a couple more episodes coming your way that will also look at how we can increase the adoption rates of regenerative agriculture in Alberta, and I'm curious to see if I get the same kind of pushback on defining regenerative agriculture in those episodes too. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can you please define regenerative agriculture for me? <laughs> huh. I'm going to start with what it's not. Okay. Okay. Because that's for it. Help. It's helpful for me. In in my best attempt at being you know academically proper and giving good reference, this idea this isn't totally mine. I'm borrowing a lot of it from uh, from John Kemp. So I don't know if anybody knows John and advancing eco agriculture, but I've heard him say something like this. So I'm always careful. It is not my idea. But regenerative ag, it's not an orthodoxy or a dogma. It's not something that's like a certified practice. It's a set of cultural management practices. And it's a change of mind. And it's a change of heart around food production. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's those set of practices that are worked together as a system. So that's, I would, before I say anything else, I'm going to stop there. So it's looking at, food production as a system rather than an industrial production model, which, you know, for the last many decades, probably almost century, globally, we've gotten really good at breaking down things into very narrow silos, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's food production or anything else, where we we do things, you know, know, an inch wide and a mile deep. Mm -hmm. And so conventional agriculture has needed to, to advance food production, gotten really good at from a chemical focus and an industrial production model at looking at crop production based on monocultures and based on a chemistry model. Mm -hmm. Whereas regenerative agriculture looks at things as a system and looks at things from a biological point of view. So to me, that's the difference. And it looks at things like, what are we doing to increase functional soil health, to improve the nutrient density of food and to enhance farmer profitability? So those sort of three pillars to me are important. And looking at it as a biological system and a set of cultural management practices that focus on that. So that's my, if there's a definition, it's that. And I would also say that it's about building ecological and economic resiliency. One of the practices that is pretty common in regenerative agriculture is creating like a intercropping or a polycrop or a crop cocktail or a cover crop. So that's fairly new thinking in terms of like as opposed to conventional. But the reason why that works, Derek, is because when you put a lot of different types of plants together, it's the way that if you look in nature, the last time any of us went hiking in the mountains, there's how many different thousands of plants and animals and fungi growing like every footstep that we take. So regenerative agriculture is realizing that it's by putting these things back together and doing it as much as we can in a bit of a designed or engineered way, there's a synergy that happens between those plants and animals that we still can't quite explain. But what that does is it builds resiliency in the growing uh, situation because it's not one monoculture, which then is easy for other like non-desirable insects and diseases to attack. It actually makes it really hard. So it's creating that environmental resiliency and it's also creating economic resiliency. And it's getting away from confined 
feeding and monocultures to building that resiliency across, which also allows a sense of economic resiliency and future-proving a business. That's the first time I've actually had somebody answer that question by saying, I'm going to define what a nut is and slowly work <laughs> to what it is. So well done. Just in case John Kemp is a new name for you. He's an agriculture producer from the Midwest and the States. He's also a writer, a trainer, a crop consultant. He even has his own podcast. From what I understand as a crop consultant, and I'm fairly certain this applies to the other jobs he does, his approach to crop nutrient management is more focused on soil biology and less on chemical inputs. And the name of the podcast that John Kemp hosts is called the Regenerative Agriculture Podcast. Why does regenerative agriculture matter? You know, we've got organic agriculture, we've got sustainable agriculture, we've got agroecology. Why the heck do we need another type of agriculture? I would say we don't need another type of agriculture. We need another way to grow food that is additive instead of extractive. Mm. Okay. We can call it regenerative agriculture. We can call it agroecological. Uh, we can call it carbon farming. I don't really care what you call it, but what I do care about and the reason why we need it is we need to figure out better ways to create growing systems that are additive versus extractive. When I say additive, the, the one thing that's easiest to go to there, which probably makes the most sense, is looking at carbon. Carbon as an element, as an atom, and as a fungible asset. And how do we grow things in a way that mimics nature as best as we can understand the complexities of nature? And how do we do that in such a way that we're adding back to or redeeming that creation or nature rather than just extracting? And so the same paradigm shift is happening in energy where energy is an extractive business, right? It's about taking something from the ground, a fossil fuel, extracting that out of the ground, breaking it down into its you know important parts, and then we create energy out of that that we use, but that's very extractive. And agriculture has, and for very necessary reasons, it has, has had to focus on growing more in a certain way. But what that's caused us to do is extract more value out of the soil than we're adding to it. So that's why we need to have something. Regenerative agriculture might be the best term for that practice because soil is a living organism. At the ranch, I could only ride my best horse for so long until that horse was done for the day. Right. And so if we keep trying to take value out of the soil, there'll be a certain point where that soil is just done. Like I I would have horses that if I wasn't careful, they would just stop like because they were done. And so if you think about that as a soil is a living organism and we can't keep extracting out of it because we'll run out of it. Let's move on to that core question for the Regenerative Agriculture Lab. So the Regenerative Agriculture Lab got started about a year ago, started with one question. The question was slightly tweaked as the lab went along, so I'll just read it out. Regenerative Agriculture is an evolving system on the cusp of taking off. How do we ensure growing adoption doesn't jeopardize its integrity or dilute its potential? So the integrity piece was new for the lab, so let's unpack that. What is this integrity piece and why are there concerns that it might be jeopardized as adoption increases? Hmm. I think a lot of us in today's culture like to put ourselves in camps or on the ends of a spectrum or we become polarized, whether it's in politics or whether it's like vaccine versus anti-vaccine. But we get in these camps or in our tribes and then we get really good at owning that and trying to protect it. And so my concern is by us trying too hard at trying to own it or own the integrity of it, then we'll lose 
sight of the need to just advance what we're doing. What I'm saying is if we're trying to define it too rigidly, if we're trying to say it has to be certified somehow, mm. like organic, if we have to own it um, to protect it, then that's actually a, a scarcity mindset instead of an abundance mindset. So me, an abundance mindset is, well, how do we make sure that we keep the principles and the practices really well defined and understood? But then how do we advance that management practice, that cultural management practice so that it becomes attractive to others rather than trying so hard to protect it or be worried about its integrity? So actually, me trying to define it in this episode was a mistake in a way. Yeah, and, and I'm not. I don't want to point that out as a mistake. I am actually pointing at me. <laughs> okay. okay. If I'm like, I've had to work really hard at my life at not wanting to be too identified as something. Okay. Not wanting to be. So I have a faith as a follower of Christ. I've learned lately that I don't want to. I don't want to be defined as a Christian. I want to know within me that I'm a follower of Christ. So that's an example that I would make. So I don't want to be defined as a regenerative ag producer. Mm. I just want to know inside of me that I'm doing things with the five specific principles of regenerative agriculture that I'm following mm. those things. And I and so if I work too hard at trying to be identified as something, if regenerative ag works too hard as a movement to be to protect that and it it as a definition or a practice, there's a part of it that's at risk of being greenwashed with marketing campaigns from really big companies. Mm. But it's like, okay, well, if they want to, if they want to use that term, fine. But our job as people of the land, as producers, as people that are passionate about that practice of regenerative agriculture, we just need to be really good at advancing what that is and not get too distracted by trying to protect its integrity. This isn't the first time it's come up, but more about like focusing on the principles as opposed to the definition. And I've definitely, like, I've seen two sides of this argument. So, like, organic, I'd say, is a very, very clear definition. And now you're starting to see them talk about regenerative or organic agriculture. So I almost get the sense that they made their definition a little too tight, even though it's a great practice. I've nothing against it. Then on the other side, you got sustainable, which is I don't even know what that means anymore because practically everything is sustainable. So I feel like there were principles there, but the strict definition was never, was either there and then it disappeared. But yeah, I, it is kind of hard, like wondering how to advance something if you have almost a fluid definition, but very strong principles. So let's talk about the principles, right? So maybe different variations of this. The five principles that I think are the most important are the ones that I believe were defined by Gabe Brown. So I don't know, mm. most people that know about regenerative ag probably know about Gabe and what he's done on on uh, Brown's Ranch and kind of like the forefather of regenerative agriculture as a practice. So minimize soil disturbance maximize crop diversity, keep the soil covered, maintain a living root year-round, and integrate livestock. Mm. So those are the five principles. Now, some people have added on a sixth one, and there'll be always iterations. The one I do like that sort of that an over-encompassing principle is understand the context of your farm operation. Mm. Whether you're growing strawberries on you know the West Coast or wheat in Saskatchewan or apples in Southern Ontario. So what's the context of your farm operation? And then those other five principles, if you're focusing on that and everything that you're, every decision you're making is based through those five lenses, then your ability to advance your systematic approach and systematic thinking to food production 
will be within the principles of regenerative agriculture. That to me is a, is a much more effective way to look at it rather than trying to devise some sort of certification that you must fit within because then it's an orthodox of mm. thou shalt do this. And it's not an, it's not an orthodoxy. It's a set of principles and cultural management practices. Yeah, let's jump to what role does post-secondary have in all, all this? Again, with the Regenerative Agriculture Lab, we're about maintaining that integrity, not owning it. But also, like, how do we accelerate regenerative agriculture in Alberta? And maybe we should be asking ourselves, should we? You know, it sounds like there's a lot of benefits. Does yep. everybody need to be a regenerative agriculture producer? I suppose is another question, but we can circle back to my original question. So how exactly can post-secondary institutions in Alberta help accelerate regenerative agriculture here? Another great question. And I, the way that I see that is making sure that there's people that are designing curriculum that understand the principles of regenerative agriculture. Like when you think about it's new ideas that become a program and within the program, there's courses and within a course, there's content or curriculum. Mm -hmm. And then an instructor will take that or instructional design team and create a a syllabus out of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So I've just kind of gone all the way back through to the basic, where does it start from? And so if those people that are doing that, they understand the importance of approaching agriculture from an additive point of view, Mm -hmm. then that will start to become a part of the course content. Mm -hmm. And so for example, at old college, in some of our new programming, we have some soil science courses that were designed by people like Chris Nickel. Oh, great. Right? Okay, yeah. yeah, totally. Right? Yeah. So that's becoming part of, our, of the delivery of that content and challenging students in their critical thinking to be allowed to question the way that they've maybe learned agriculture. Like, I'm really careful when I say that because I don't want ever to say that they should be questioning what they were taught by their mom and dad or their grandparents or an aunt or uncle. But it's more about questioning how can we do this better? And so if we're giving them foundational knowledge around how to look at things through a different lens, through an additive lens, and we're we're building that foundational learning around a biological approach to agronomy versus just chemical and maybe giving them the chance to compare one against the other and looking at from a practice point of view, the different types of equipment or principles that can be, or practices that can be put together to run a farm or ranch and teaching them that. So, so that's more, I would say on the, on the college side of things where we're, where we're more hands-on and we're more uh, like a, like a two-year diploma doesn't go so far into the deep, pure kind of research. But if we think about our, the universities is how do they then do the same thing where they're creating course content that helps students understand systems and the approach to an agronomic system based on biology. And then when they start doing their foundational research and their master's and their, and their PhDs and their postdoc research, then they start doing that deep research around systematic approaches to biological additive agriculture. That's how we really shift the pendulum. So when those people graduate and our students are going back to the family farm or they're going to work for an input company or somewhere else, they're already thinking about a different approach to that. And then that thinking will start to come out in the doing of their job, whether they're on the farm or whether they're within the agriculture industry. And that's, I believe, how we advance the principles of of regenerative agriculture. For like agriculture producers who, let's say they, I don't know, they can't go back to school, like they don't have the opportunity to go back to post-secondary, but they're super interested in regenerative agriculture, and we've also noticed this, that there's really 
right now there's no one go-to source for regen egg let's just call it education right now yep. specific to alberta what are the opportunities for an agriculture producer in alberta who can't go back to school necessarily but would like to still learn with olds college or maybe even work with olds college we collectively in terms of both research and education post-secondary advanced education need to figure out ways to repackage the knowledge that we have to make it more accessible to those career folks that when you say can't go back it's probably because they've got a 60 or 80 hour a week job they have right now running their farmer ranch if you're thinking primary producer so how do we make the content more accessible and more consumable. And so we do that in terms of making, like I talked about, a two-day seminar on autonomous agriculture. How do organizations like Olds College or Lakeland College or Lethbridge College, how do we create different types of continuing education? Or how do we become more of like an extension arm? So lots of the land-grant universities in the U.S. have an extension department. And our provincial government for quite a while, I had pretty good extension services where I could phone up 310 Farm and ask a question. Yeah. Right? Well, that doesn't exist anymore because it changes. Mm. So how do we make it easier and more accessible and consumable for those busy professionals to access snippets of information they need or to come for a, a tour of a regenerative ag demonstration farm? Maybe you do a, like a, a Saturday, Sunday in-person like seminar where they would stay close to town, they might stay here on our campus. Mm. And we would take them on a two-day tour of our regenerative ag farm, assuming that we had something like that, yeah. and say, here's how we're doing it. Here's what we found out works. Here's what doesn't work. Here's the resources we, we've used. Let us know if you need help. I think those are the kind of things that make it more accessible. And then we need to build a community. From a regenerative agriculture perspective, we need to take advantage of technology. And we need to figure out a way to build a community because... I learned things about farming in the dressing room at men's hockey. I was listening to one of the guys talk about a, a variety of barley he was growing. And I was like, hey, well, tell me more about that. So how do we do that in some sort of leverage, you know, the digital capabilities and digital platforms to build a community around that so that we could make it that easy so that your neighbors are more virtual, but you still trust them and know them. It was just tough. Like, obviously, through the experience that the Regen Lab, having to do that whole thing online, like, it was doable, but it was just definitely not ideal. You couldn't help but wonder if we'd been in person, what the connections between participants would have been or how much further it would have went. Maybe it still would have went as far, but it, uh, those virtual settings is tricky. I think it's a part of the answer, but like, yeah. like maybe there's a provincial, like a two-day seminar that a bunch of different organizations work on to, to deliver regenerative agriculture content. Mm. Right. So like a conference or trade show or because then then there is that in-person thing yeah. like that doesn't exist anywhere. We have agri trade and we have our ag smart show here at Old College that focus on a certain ag technology and smart ag and the and the academic and the applied research. And then the, and then the uh, on the demonstration of that. What if someone worked on it like a two day regenerative agriculture conference where you could go and just get soaked with everything you need from experts and then have those connections available so that you could like email them or jump on a platform like Chaotix or like Slack or something like that, where there was a way for you to be connected to those people that you met. Uh, so my next question is, it's related to what we're talking about, but I am slightly going off topic. So a big part of your job is managing strategic partnerships. Mm-hmm. 
I'm assuming you know a thing or two about partnerships, the headaches, and the glory of the whole thing. I'm just curious when it comes to advancing regenerative agriculture in Alberta, how key is building partnerships and collaborations? Well, collaborations, first of all, are partnerships. Like, think of where the word partner comes from. Like, think of, like, back in the Western movies that we watch, right? Like, yeah. Howdy, partner. Like, that's a community term, right? When you think about it, right? And then there's a, when you think about a partner in a, like a legal firm or a consulting firm, when you make partner, that's, there's a, there's a certain connotation that goes with that. But I look at it from a, the old John Wayne Westerns where if someone called you partner, that actually meant something. So partnerships and collaboration to me is about community. The way that we can advance regenerative agriculture is to figure out ways to build true partnerships, to build community relationships with some of those corporate strategics that are really diving into regenerative ag, like General Mills, like Walmart, like Denon, like Nestle, like Farm Credit Canada. They're taking a really hard look at what you know the carbon economy and sustainability is all about. So how do we create partnerships and build community between those that can help finance a lot of these things? And then some of the companies, the small to medium-sized companies that are advancing technologies and practices with the producers who take all the risk and do all the work on the front end to grow the food that actually creates that whole, that makes the whole system viable. To me, that's how we would use the idea of partnerships and collaboration. But I think it's like, how do we create real community? I would also say it reminds me of the idea of common ground or the messy middle. Collaboration and partnerships mean sometimes you have to let go of some of the things that could get in the way of that and figure out how do we all get more towards common ground for the common good. That is not easy to do. Like and you talked about like the, some of the, the headaches and the heartaches of collaboration and partnership. Yeah. We're typically as humans, we're not always good at that. We get to be sort of protective of our family or protect. I talked before about being in a tribe or being polarized. So getting to the messy middle or common ground is really hard work. And then when you start doing a collaboration between more than just two individuals or two organizations, then it gets, then it's a web, right? Then it's not just a one-on-one and that gets even more difficult. So it takes people that are connectors, that are visionary that also have a lot of manure and dirt on their boots that can understand why that's necessary. That's, to me, what it would take to create a collaborative and a partner-focused effort within the regenerative ag system to advance that and to really move the needle on advancing that from an agricultural production approach. And then for any producers that are listening to this, and you know, there are definitely producers who are just trying to build partnerships and collaborations in their own community or maybe a little bit outside of their community, just based on your own experience, any lessons learned on partnership building that you could share with us? I think it's it's finding where people of like mind are hanging out, <laughs> okay. right? So, like, and where is that? I don't know. As farmers and ranchers, lots of times we find those like-minded people at Tim Hortons. We find them at a turkey supper at the community hall or at church or at school. We bump into those people there. So for a producer, it's like finding out where those people are hanging out, which in 2021, that tends to be so much more in the digital space, right? right? So how do we find out the right places on social media that we want to hang out in Mm. on LinkedIn, on Twitter? I don't know. I'm not a TikTok person or Instagram or like there's all kinds of places. Our daughter spends a lot of time 
as a foodie with different groups, I, I think probably a lot on Instagram, maybe Facebook. So I would say like, how do you find the right places to hang out, to be encouraged and challenged by other like-minded and systematic thinking, critical thinking people? That's where you'll probably find the most opportunity to build those collaborations. It might mean becoming part of our next regenerative ag lab if that gets to go next year. Quickly jumping in here, I may have forgotten to tell Jason before the interview that the Rural Roots of Climate Solutions Regenerative Agriculture Lab is a go for 2022. Rural Roots is actively recruiting participants in January and February. If you remember from part one of Egg Research, we ran the Regen Lab in 2021 with mainly agriculture producers. This year is going to be different. This year, we're opening up participation in the lab to other professions as well, as well as other people who can have an impact on the food production system. Go to the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions website for more details. And read. One of the best ways to get, part of, to get into the, the community of thinking yeah. is to read. And, to, and, and, and so when you find those books, those articles, those research papers... And you consume that and it, you let it become part of you. Then when you do run into those people or you have those purposeful collaborations, then you're, you're armed with knowledge and understanding to be able to engage and get the value out of those collaborations. Yeah, I was even thinking what you mentioned about like the messy middle. So they're not exactly like-minded people you'd be working with in that space, but at least they might not be like-minded on something like Regen Egg, but maybe you both care about soil health or maybe you both care about the community. Like engaging in that space can be really challenging. If somebody asks, like I think Rural Roots works in the messy middle, but if somebody asks me for suggestions or lesson learned there, just like, I don't know, open heart, open mind in those cases. Well, if you want to be bold, like if a, if a group of regenerative ag producers wants to be bold, then why not find a way to have some sort of interaction with someone that's a really well-known person from a conventional ag point of view, right? Mm. That might really push hard on some of your assumptions or some of the things that you maybe hold too close to be as a belief, but they're not really founded. If you want to grow, then go to those places in the mess or invite people to the messy middle and be willing to be challenged and pushed by people that have a different approach than you. And this is me talking to myself again, because it can get really easy to gather around you those like-minded people. And you think that you're doing something that's, you know, alternative or non-conventional or you're moving the needle, but it's like, well, not really because it's pretty easy to be around a bunch of people that think the same as you. So I challenge myself with that is like, how do I, how do I ask questions of people that I know are probably going to not agree with me at all and be willing to listen to them? And if I don't have an answer, then I better go find it out because maybe they've got a good point that I just haven't figured out how best to put that into practice. I'm going to, again, borrow a line from somebody else. One day when I grow up, I'll have more of my own lines. But I, I think back to the last line of the book that Gabe Brown wrote, Dirt to Soil, One Family's Journey into Regenerative Agriculture. And I think it reads like, just do something. And so if I could add anything to the folks listening to think about, it would be like, just do something. If there's some kind of urging inside of you, it's like, I don't feel right. Or I feel like there's something more I could do. Or there's something around the way I manage the land that could be better. I don't know what it is. I don't necessarily want to continue doing things the way I am, but I also don't want to take a big risk. Like I'm not going to change my whole operation over in a year or even in a couple of years, but 
it's like just do something. Mm. Like figure out, okay, I want to focus on compaction in my soil. Or I want to focus on how do I understand more about a crop cocktail. Or I want to try a crop cocktail. You know, out of a 160-acre field, I'm going to take five acres and just plant five acres where I can grow a crop cocktail that I also know that I can maybe fence that off and run some small, you know, grazing paddocks that I can run my cattle in there at, later on in the year. Do something like that. And if, if you're really brave, then, you know, jump right in and start to change things a field at a time. But unless you change the way, this is another quote, like Don Campbell has said, if you want to make small changes, change the way you do things. If you want to make big changes, change the way you see things. So maybe just doing something, if I pull all these together, is like, well, maybe I need to just start thinking about things differently. If you've taken holistic management, you've probably heard of Don Campbell already. Don is a cattle rancher out in Saskatchewan who's been teaching the holistic management course for over 25 years. The Canadian Cattlemen's website has a bunch of articles that Don wrote about five years ago. I'd say those articles are worth checking out. I'm going to give the final word to Jason because I really like what he has to say in this part about the importance of asking ourselves why before we start asking ourselves how. Like, so that would be the doing something and that will cause you to be like, oh, well, then maybe I need to change the way I do something because I've looked at it differently. So I'll give you an example. So at the Red Deer River Ranch where I was, one thing that really drove me crazy, like, why are these fences here? Like I inherited a 120 year old ranch. And some of them are there because there's a road or there's a property line or whatever. But there's other ones like, why is there a fence here? And I couldn't figure out why. Um, And I think that's what started to help me to think differently and to see differently. And so I got to the point where I felt like I was banging my head on the wall trying to break down our industrial production model into making decisions that were based solely on different parts of the operation. I started to see things differently when I looked at my fields and I'm like, okay, well, if I move the fences, then I could do this. And then it made, it took me to the next step of saying, oh, well, maybe I should put fences here. Well, I've got this riparian area that's not fenced at all. Well, I shouldn't have cattle like walking in there into the Holland Creek and, you know, grazing along the creek and standing in the creek. And so that looking at it differently said, okay, well, I'm going to fence off the creek. Well, if I fence off the creek, then I'm going to actually want to think about grazing differently. And then I started looking at these people that were doing things differently with their grazing practices. And then I thought, okay, I need to create an adaptive multi-paddock grazing system. That different thinking caused me to start reaching out to experts like the Great Wooded Forge Association. So Albert Quippers, when he was there, Kuipers, sorry. He was one of the people that helped me design this adaptive multi-paddock grazing system. And then I thought, well, I can't use conventional fencing for that. So then I got asking around and, and I realized a friend of mine had this really advanced curvy linear fencing system that is a one pass, put the post in, drill a hole in the post, run the wire through the post, high tensile electric fence that can follow a curve. Very cool. So then I designed my adaptive multi-paddock grazing system because I started to think differently about, well, why are my fields even the way they are? And then to make AMP work, adaptive multi-paddock grazing, I got to put the cattle where the grass is that I want them on, but I got to put the water where the cattle are. Mm -hmm. So how do I get water there? Because they're not not going into the creek at free will anymore. And then I realized, well, I've got water springs everywhere on this ranch and there's a little bit of elevation there. So I got thinking and looking at it like, I think I could build the gravity fed water system. And then I heard about this guy, John Cross, the family that has for years, decades run the A7. And I heard that he was doing something like that. So I phoned him up and I said, 
could I just come down and just, could you show me how your operation works? And then I borrowed ideas from him. I went back to the Bar 75 and I built two gravity fed water systems that use only elevation and water pressure. And this four foot by eight foot tank I made out of cedar two by sixes that worked like a toilet tank, but it had a float in it. And I could drag that thing around and put it in a two acre paddock that I could build with portable fencing inside of my electric fence system. And then I had a system that I could run. The first year I ran 100, I ran 50 cow-calf pairs and 50 heifers in my grazing system in year one. And I was petrified at the beginning of the year that I was going to have not enough grass, too many cattle. And, and it was about 300 and some acres on two different sides of the ranch. And right off the bat, I started thinking, I don't have enough cattle instead of the other way around. So at, at the end of that year, I'm like, man, I have a lot of grass left and I had 100 head of cattle. So year two, the fellow that I was custom grazing for, I said, I said to Ben, well, send 200 purebred heifers. And he sent me 200 red Angus purebred heifers. This was a, a lot of his inventory. And for some reason, the guy trusted me. And so I ran 200 heifers through that same system the second year without adding no synthetic fertilizer, no herbicide, no fungicide, no nothing. And I was able to double my utilization and my forage production. And I measured it really, really accurately. I had built a spreadsheet and I could measure how many exact acres to the tenth of an acre and how many days or hours of grazing. And at the end of that year, Derek, same thing. Like day one, I'm like, oh man, what what have I done? I've, I've, he sent 200 animals here. That's twice as what I had last year. Mm-hmm. At the end of that grazing season, I had grass left. Really? And I'm like, hmm. So the next year I said to Ben, I think you should probably send me 300 animals. So he sent 300 Charlet, Black Angus, Red Angus heifers. So most all of his bred heifers from his operation. And same thing, I'm like, oh man, what did I do? And then about July of that year, I'm like, I can't get them through the system fast enough. Maybe I don't have enough animals. And then it was a drought year. So then I was panicking again. Well, I'm not going to have enough grass. So I got to October of that year and all my grass that, that I had grazed two times around was coming back and regrowing in October. And I took pictures of it and it looked like it was about August. Really? Because I started to look at things differently. Couldn't figure out why my fences were where they were from 100 plus years of people doing it before me. Then I challenged myself to think about it as a system. Then I built a system and I ran it as a system and I increased my forage utilization and production by 300% over three years. So that's my own little story about just do something and start to really look at things differently, which will allow you to do things differently. And then you start to see the results. And then it won't be about trying to convince people that regenerative ag is a good idea. It'll be like trying to stop the masses from wanting to do more of it because you actually get to see it. I could see it. I could smell it. I could smell the manure and the dirt and the cattle. And I would sometimes lay there and listen to them graze. When I would turn them from one paddock into the next, because they had about a 48-hour graze period, They went from a little bit stressed standing at the gate and I'd open up this in between the two paddocks. And sometimes I would just lay down and listen to them graze because they went from, they were so content and so focused on what they were doing. And there was 300 animals there and all I could hear was them 
grazing on grass. And I could hear all kinds of different pollinators buzzing around. And it was like, okay, this is working. Such a satisfying sound. I can hear it right now. Sitting in this room, I can actually hear the satisfaction of those animals doing what they were created to do, which was to be a grazing machine in a grazing system. I like to like that kind of if we call it a journey there. Like you started with the why, not the how. So it wasn't like how the hell am I going to do this? Like why am I doing this? Which I find because producers, for very good reasons, are extremely practical folks. It's usually how, 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 how. Yeah. Usually there's not enough time to think about why, but it almost sounds like with any journey towards regenerative agriculture or any transition in agriculture, like it sounds like the why is a really good starting point. It's also a scary question to ask yourself, why has my family done this for generations or why do we do stuff like that? Because you might not have the answer immediately. It's way harder to ask that question, honestly, when you're in a multi-generational farm or ranch, then it feels like you're challenging your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa, like, why did you do that, right? And then it feels like a personal thing. Or it can. It doesn't always. It was a bit different for me because I didn't have the other 100 years of the Bar 75 owners and managers there. Mm. I just had what they'd left me to look at. But you're right. It's asking why. And I've learned a really good thing as I'm studying my master's degree about the five whys. And if you ask yourself why like five times, and I got to remember whose model it is. But by the time you get to the fifth time of asking yourself why, you will have narrowed down what it is you need to do, the what, because you've asked yourself why enough times to really narrow it down. And you're right. I, I started by asking myself, why are these fences here? Like, I'm, there's a mental image in my mind of my grazing system. I'm closing my eyes right now because nobody can see me. But I'm like, well, why was that? Why is that fence there? Why isn't the creek fence? And why doesn't, my, why doesn't my business work the way it should? And I started asking sort of bigger why questions. Mm. And then it made me realize, well, I guess because it was broken down this way, but it's not, why isn't it working as a system? Because I hear these people that seem to be really experienced practitioners and they talk about it as a system and like, well, why isn't it working as a system? Well, because I'm not thinking of it that way. I didn't design it that way and I'm not using it that way. Mm. So there's some other opportunities for folks to think about is the why is really important. Um, And if you do that and you change the way that you see things, that's the same thing, right? If you change the way you see things, that's kind of asking why. And the what is change the way you do things, which is the smaller things. But then you start to put all those different what's together. And then you have a system that starts to work. And, and lots of times you can't explain why it's working. And you have to sit comfortable in the uneasiness of that because we can't explain why when you plant 10 or 12 different types of perennial grasses and legumes together, or many other different kinds of varieties in a crop cocktail. Like, why does it work that way? And we don't always know. We know a little bit about why, but you have to be able to be comfortable with not knowing a lot of that, but you have to be able to just see, oh, that does work. And then it's worth exploring that more. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with Climate Solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and social innovation labs, produces a farmer's blog, works with rural communities to develop their own renewable energy projects, and of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. 
the rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Marie Galanka, Brenda Barrett, Lance Tailfeathers, and Marta Swart. The podcast is funded by a variety of Alberta-based foundations. This episode was recorded in Calgary and in Olds, which means this episode was recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in Métis Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farmer.